I know that we've got uh, a few new faces in the room with us, so this being your first time here may not be true, what I'm about to say, but I want to kind of welcome you in uh, to this gathering of Covenant Baptist Church as we find ourselves here again today on another Lord's Day. We're all coming as sinners covered by the righteousness of Christ. That's why we're here. We understand that we are very much imperfect people who have been rescued by a perfect Savior. We rejoice in that reality. And we, because we understand that we are needy, and because we understand that we're sinners and we are so easily distracted and burdened by the cares of this life, we have come again today to sit under the Word of God. We have come again today to participate in the sacrament of the Lord's table. We have come again today to sing, and we have come again today to pray. As we've thought about recently, it's so good of God and kind of God that he tells us to do this every week because we need it so much. It is so easy to be carried away by all of the burdens and concerns that we all face. I trust that as I survey this room and I look at dozens of people that there have been many hard weeks this week. There have been maybe some really good weeks, but they've been very busy to where you're just feeling like, hey, I'm just catching my breath here and getting my feet back under me over the weekend. It is good of God that we get to come here today and that we get to do this. And I rejoice in the fact that as we look to the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians, we're going to get to consider two great truths from Scripture today. We're going to unpack the verses, and certainly there's more in there than just two great truths, but two things I think will flavor this sermon today, and I rejoice over both of them. The first is adoption. It is a doctrine that is one of the sweetest in Scripture, the fact that the God of the universe, the holy God, the great I Am, has, by His grace through His Son, adopted sinners to be His legitimate children. And sadly, it's a, it's a doctrine that's not talked about a lot. And that is to the detriment of the church. And I'm excited for us to be able to consider this today. And the second wonderful truth of Scripture that we're going to get to consider today is, is the truth, the doctrine of assurance. Adoption and assurance that we will be with God forever, they go together. And if adoption is often neglected, I fear that assurance, even in the evangelical church, is often undermined. And I pray that today God continues to give us not only faith in His Son, but that He continues to plant our feet on the solid rock, that we would know that we know that we know that He is good with us and we are good with Him. So as is perhaps clear in the way that I stated those truths, adoption and assurance come simply through faith in Jesus. As we've been making our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians, that has been the thrust of Paul's argument. He's been defending the truth of the gospel message, the good news that sinners really are reconciled to holy God simply by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, simply by trusting in the perfect righteousness of Christ in our place and in the atoning death of Jesus Christ in our place and also in his triumphant resurrection that has conquered sin and death and Satan in our place. 
It's apart from any works that we do, that we are justified, declared righteous by God. And so it's all through Christ, adoption and assurance because of Christ. It's where we're going today. I hope you're excited. I certainly am. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, open them up to Galatians chapter 4. So we find ourselves in the New Testament, uh, just to kind of lay of the land. I like to do this every now and then, just to orient some of us, uh, maybe who are newer to the faith. We begin the New Testament with the Gospels, the four Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, followed by the book of Acts, which is the second part of Luke's writing. Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts were one originally. And then after the book of Acts, we move into Paul's letters, arranged from longest to shortest. So we start with Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then we get into Galatians. And so here we are. And we are now in the fourth chapter of this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to Christians in modern-day Turkey nearly 2,000 years ago. We're going to be considering today verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4. But I'm going to begin reading for us in chapter 3 and verse 23 just to give us a little bit of context. So now that you have your Bibles open, and now that I maybe have thoroughly confused Sean as to what verses to have up there, you know, here we go. Galatians 3 and verse 23. This is the Word of God. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word today and every day. So I want to consider this this text. I want to give you this message in, in two parts. Part one, part two. So part one is essentially a wrestling with the text. We're just going to make our way through these seven verses and aim to understand it and rejoice over what's there. And then in part two, I'm going to give us two big, what I'm going to call takeaways, like stuff that you can put in your backpack and take home with you today, these great truths of adoption and assurance. So part one, the text. Let's put our eyes now on verse one of chapter four. That start of chapter four, verse one I don't really love the way that it's rendered, where in our ESV it says, I mean that the heir, literally in the, in the original it just says, now I say. Now I say the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. Paul is continuing to just draw to a close and hammer home the argument that he's been making for a number of verses now. So that chapter division is actually very poorly placed. You realize those weren't in the original. 
the original text. Those chapter divisions were put in later. So Paul's continuing on with his argument. I mean, we should see, now I say, an heir, as long as he is a child, literally a minor, underage, not yet of age, is no different from a hired hand, is no different from a bondservant or a slave in the household functionally. That's the point that Paul is making. Even though the heir, even though the son of the homeowner is the heir to everything, even though he owns the whole household, when he's still a minor and underage, before he receives his inheritance, he still is functionally a slave. That's what Paul is arguing in verses 1 and 2, essentially. The reason that's true is because that underage, that minor, underaged heir, is underneath the guardianship of a custodian or a guardian until an agreed-upon date when he would receive the inheritance from his father. And so remember last week we saw that Paul compared the law to a guardian. Paul compared the law to a custodian. This temporary interim arrangement that was put in place by God underneath his covenant of redemption, we considered that, how the law functioned like a guardian for the people of God. And so as I've been making the case throughout this letter to the Galatians, it's imperative that we understand these verses, all of them, but these verses certainly, in light of redemptive history, in light of even progressive revelation, and how the plan of God, the covenant of redemption that God made, beginning in Genesis 3.15, unfolds. Because if we don't have that in view, I'm afraid that we're going to get confused as we try to make sense, certainly, of verse 3. So as we look there, verse 3, Paul is going to, he's saying, just like an heir, until he is of age, is functionally a slave in his household, just like that, in the same way, verse 3, we also, and by that we, he's talking about the people of God in general, Jew and Gentile, people of God. We, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So from a redemptive historical perspective, what's true of that underaged heir in a household is true of the people of God under the law. While the law was our guardian, that was happening while we were yet mature, before faith came, as we were considering last week. We were once minors, so to speak. We were once children, not yet of age. We were functionally like slaves under the law and enslaved to the powers of sin and darkness. That's what Paul is arguing for in verse 3. That's those words that are uh, rendered elementary principles in your version of the ESV, I trust, that is in mine, could also be rendered elemental spirits or even the elements of the world. The point to be made by Paul there, regardless of how you render it, is that he's talking about bondage under the law to sin. Bondage under the law to the spiritual forces of the fallen world. Bondage under the law is the natural position of every human being who's ever been born. That from time past into time future, any human being who ever will be born will be born naturally in a position of bondage to sin underneath the good and righteous law of God, not in right standing with the Lord because of the corruption that we have inherited from our father, Adam. And so Paul's point in verses 1 through 3 is this, that though the people of God, outside of space and time, though the people of God, outside of space and time, were always his sons and daughters, there was an era of redemptive history under the law when they were essentially underage. 
when they were functionally living like slaves in their father's household under the law. Let's say that again. Paul's point in verses 1 through 3 is that even though the people of God were always, in one sense, God's sons and daughters, there was a time in redemptive history where they functionally lived like servants, functionally lived like slaves in the house of God underneath the law. And so the question has to be asked, what changed? What's different? Because clearly it's different now. We're talking about inheritance. We're talking about justification by faith and all of these things. Something has changed. What has happened? And now that brings us to verse 4. You see Paul puts that wonderful word there in verse 4, but. But when? The fullness of time had come. You can see this just as easily as I can. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Question, what changed? We used to functionally be like slaves in the household of God. We used to be under the law, functionally living like servants, not like heirs. What changed? Most simply and most frankly, Jesus came. Jesus came. The new covenant era came with him. With the coming of Messiah, a new era in redemptive history dawned. He was born of woman, we see there in the text, there in verse 4. Of course, we're talking about the Virgin Mary, who he was born of. He was born of a virgin, but that's not really the point that Paul's making, the virgin birth. I think that Genesis 3.15, where God promises that there would come one who would be a seed of the woman, he would be born of woman, born of Eve's descendant, who would crush the head of the serpent, that's in view. But then also Paul is just making the point very simply, that Jesus was truly human. Jesus was truly God and truly man. He was born of woman, born under the law as a human being. He was born under the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with his people through Moses. Jesus was born under that. That really matters. Why? Paul tells us, in order to, verse 5, redeem those who were under the law. Well, who's that? That's all of us. So Jesus was born truly human underneath the law God gave through Moses in order to redeem the children of God. Well, how did he do that? How did he do that? How did he redeem those under the law? Two things that can be said. First, he redeemed those under the law by perfectly fulfilling it. This should not be a mystery to anybody who has been here as we've worked our way through the book of Galatians. This can't be said enough, though. Jesus, truly human, born under the law, fulfilled it perfectly in our place as our representative. So God requires something called perfect righteousness if we are ever going to be right with him. God requires perfect righteousness in order to have a relationship with another being. Well, the Bad news about that is that you don't have that, and I don't have that. No sinner has ever had that perfect righteousness. And so we needed one. We needed a representative. We needed a substitute who could fulfill righteousness in our place. And praise God, God provided that in the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ who came and obeyed the law of God perfectly in every way, at the thought level at the motivation level, at the heart level, at the execution physical level, he fulfilled it all. So that then in Christ, through faith in Christ, when we trust him, 
God counts, He imputes, He credits that perfect righteousness to us by faith. But then also, how else did Jesus redeem all of us who were born under the law? The second piece of that is that He made perfect atonement for our sins. Because not only did we need that righteousness, we also have really done bad things. We were born with a corrupt nature, a heart that hates God, a heart that is bent in on ourselves, and that's a problem. That has to be atoned for because God is good. God does not sweep sin under the rug as though it's no big deal. God does not, in saving sinners, compromise His righteousness at all. And so that meant that, again, we needed a substitute. We needed one who would come, who didn't have to die for his own sins, but could then die in our place as a man for our sins. And that's what Christ did. He took our law-breaking upon himself, and then he paid the penalty that the law requires. That's death, judgment, wrath of God. He paid that in full for anyone who would ever trust in him. That's why we can sing a wonderful hymn like Jesus paid it all because he did every bit of it. There's nothing left for you to do. Nothing left for me to do because Christ has accomplished our redemption. Praise be to his name. All right. So Jesus, when the fullness of time had come, there used to be this different scenario, this different arrangement under which the people of God lived called the law. It was an interim arrangement. The new covenant comes, this new era in redemptive history. The Messiah comes. He is born of woman under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law so that, you can put your eyes back on verse 5 now, so that. I've said this many times, one of my favorite conjunctions in the Bible, so that. Because it pulls back the curtain for us and it lets us know why God is doing stuff. It's not just telling us what God is doing, it's telling us why he did it. Okay, well, why did Jesus come to redeem all of us who are under the law? So that, in order that, we might receive adoption as sons. So that we might receive adoption as sons. You want to know if God loves you? You want to see the love of God? Look to verses like that. Think about what you deserve from Him. Though he has given you life and breath and everything, we worship the creation, not him. We are obsessed with ourselves and not him. We do wickedness and not righteousness. We're never taught to sin. We just do it as naturally as it is, as it is for us to breathe. That's how easily we sin. So God would be perfectly good and just to judge every one of us. And you want to see the grace, the mercy, the love of God. You look at that so that, in order that, we might receive adoption as sons. God is a loving God. A merciful God. A good God. He is slow to anger. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin through His Son. It's amazingly good news so that we might be adopted into the family of God legitimately as sons and daughters. And remember, this redemptive historical stuff matters because if we don't have redemptive history in view, we might be tempted to flatten, in one sense, verses 4 and 5 to the individual level. 
There's more there than just the individual salvation of you or me. It's certainly true that we, in our lifetimes, were once immature, enslaved under the law to sin. That's true. And then through Christ, we've been adopted as children of God. That's true. Praise God that that's true. But it's not Paul's primary point. Paul's primary point in verses 4 and 5 is to continue to contend that as redemptive history has unfolded, it would be absolute nonsense to turn the clock back in salvation history and go back to Moses. The point that he is making is that to go back to the Mosaic Covenant, going back to keeping the law for righteousness, to go back to circumcision and all of these things, to go back there would be absolutely foolish now that this new era of redemptive history has dawned. That's the point that he's driving home. It would be a huge mistake. Now that Messiah has come, it's a new day. Now that the fullness of time has come, that's, that's a key to understanding this text. Paul's not just talking about your life individually there, that you were just converted at some point. That's true and that's awesome. He's talking about the fullness of time in God's plan of redemption, in his covenant of redemption. When the fullness of time came, Jesus came. At the right time, Jesus came to usher in the new covenant. And now that the new covenant is here, why would we go back? Why would we go backwards to law-keeping? Why would we go backwards to circumcision? He's already demonstrated that the very man to whom circumcision was given, Abraham, himself was justified by faith. God has always been saving people by trusting his promises, by faith. But we certainly would be absolutely out of our minds to contend that we need to go back to keeping the law. Why would we ever leave Jesus and go back to Moses? That's his point. Because in the fullness of time, God's plan had unfolded. The new era is here that was anticipated by the law and that was pointed to over and over again by the prophets. The day that they all longed to see has arrived. Why would we go back? Let's put our eyes now on verse 6 as we continue to wrestle our way through these seven verses. Paul now tells us, because we are sons, because we are children of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. One important thing to notice here, friends, is the causal relationship. What I mean is, one reality exists because another one exists. Does that make sense? One caused another, one is the ground of another. And it's a little bit counterintuitive. I want you to look at it with me. Verse 6 reads this way. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. We naturally, intuitive would, intuitively, would probably read that the other way around. Right? We would, we would understand, because we've been born again, we're now sons. But it doesn't say that. It says, because you're sons, God caused you to be born again. So this is like deep grace of God stuff, like eternity past stuff that's all over the Bible that we've got to wrestle with. What is it that produced our new birth? What is it that caused God to send His Spirit into our hearts that we might call Him Father? What is it? It's grace. It's the fact that we were sons. It's the fact that we were sons and daughters of God by grace. Now, that existed in eternity past, and is there mystery in that? You better believe there is. There is mystery in that, and it is glorious news, that your salvation has roots 
that go into eternity past, before the world began, in one sense. You were a son. You were a daughter of the living God. And because that's true, in time and space, in your life, God has now caused you to be born again. Your adoption as his child is no fragile thing. No fragile thing whatsoever. And it's not in jeopardy. Again, let's put our eyes back on the verse. Because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Another important thing to observe there in verse 6 is that it is because it is made possible in us to call God Father because the Spirit of Christ has been given to us. It is the Spirit of Christ, you see this, the Spirit of Jesus in us enables us to cry out Abba, Father. Abba being a very tender family term for your dad. Romans 8, 15 and 16, we considered these verses briefly last week, but I'm going to read them to you again. Paul tells us there in that letter, as he writes to the Roman believers, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the reason that you can call God Father is because God has put the spirit of his son Jesus, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit in you. That's a supernatural reality that you didn't accomplish. I trust everybody in this room knows that. It's like, man, I, I came to know Christ not because I did that, but because God did something, and that happened to me. And then it is the Holy Spirit in us that continues to testify to us that we are, in fact, in truth, children of God. So the Holy Spirit makes us aware in the first place, like something has happened, my relationship to God has changed in Christ. I now cry out by the Spirit, Father. And then in an ongoing way, the Holy Spirit keeps us aware that we are children of God by free grace through Jesus Christ. So in other words, it is through the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit that we have faith at all. And it is through the Holy Spirit that we have assurance in an ongoing way that we are in fact children of God. And as we think about the fact that God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts and we call Him Father, you realize, and so do I, that it's also the Holy Spirit working through you that causes you to start to bear the family resemblance more and more. What I mean by that is as we're adopted into the family of God, pretty jacked up on the front end. We're still, a lot of us are still messed up, right? We always, we're continually being changed. But then you look back and you're like, man, when I, when I first became a Christian, it was even worse than it is now, perhaps. And the thing that happens is God puts his Holy Spirit in you. And through the work of the Spirit, we start to bear the family resemblance. We start to change, to look more and more like our big brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're sanctified by the Holy Spirit's work in us. And it's also through the Holy Spirit that we start to seek the family's good. The family of God, I mean. It's by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in us, that we start to seek the family's good by loving our brother, by loving our sister. It doesn't come from you, it doesn't come from me. It's God's Spirit working through you and me that we begin to love the brothers and the sisters. And so just to kind of put a little conclusion on the argument, Jesus came to redeem the sons and the daughters of God. The work of Christ is applied to the sons and the daughters of God by the Holy Spirit. 
And it's through the Holy Spirit in us that we know and that we cry out to God as Father. We know Him as Father by the Spirit and we cry out to Him as Father by the Spirit. And the Spirit in us continues to testify, bears witness to your spirit that, hey, I am in fact a child of God. Now verse 7, let's put our eyes there. And so, you are no longer a slave. Functionally, you're not living like that anymore. You're not living like a slave in the household of God, but as a son you're living. But a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. That progression is relatively simple. You're not living like a slave, you're living like a son. And if you're living like a son, you are an heir of God's promises. The kingdom that God has promised. The new heavens and the new earth. The land that God has promised. The eternal blessedness in His presence forever that God has promised is yours and it's mine because we've been adopted into the family of God. And we're now heirs. And then those last two words, I don't want us to overlook those. Then an heir through God, by means of God. Just in case, just in case there was any doubt as to who's driving the car, just in case there was any doubt as to who's really doing this thing, we get those words. We're then an heir by means of God. God is the one who has accomplished all of this. God is the one who builds the salvation machine, and God is the one who runs it. God is the one who planned redemptive history, and God is the one who executes it. That's crystal clear from the Apostle Paul. So now, friends, I want us to move into part two of of the message today, in which we're going to consider two large takeaways. Takeaway one, takeaway two. And these things are not what you would maybe typically consider um, as like sermon application, but I would much rather give you guys may observe this in me now. I would much rather give these really high-level, like, implication kind of things that will affect everything underneath them. And sometimes we talk in an immediately practical way, of course. But these things are heart-level things that will affect everything in your life and mine. So takeaway number one is this. Speaking to Christians, believers, God is your Father. He has adopted you, and He loves you. Say that again. Believer, God is your Father. He has adopted you, and He loves you. We're going to consider that for just a moment. We read Exodus chapter 3 earlier, in which God revealed His covenant name to Moses. The name that I'm going to be known by is I Am. I am who I am. Yahweh, the Lord, right? That's how it's rendered in our Old Testament. Capital L-O-R-D. That's His covenant name. The great I am, the God who says, I am who I am, which I'm going to try to refrain from unpacking everything that that name entails. In the new covenant, that God is known to us as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that same great I am beckons us to call him Father. Now, we're so used to praying to God and and talking to God and referring to God as Father, that we're kind of inoculated how scandalous that is. The fact that the holy God of the universe, the great I Am, would say, call me Father, is flat out staggering. It's pretty cool. 
The holy God is now our Father. And that means that we can approach Him without fear. That, that was not true in the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Covenant, the way that the tabernacle was set up. God insulated Himself and His holiness from His people. You guys know the kind of concentric circles almost of how the camp of Israel was arranged with the Holy of Holies in the middle. And only the high priest could go in there once a year. And now we're told we call God Father and we can approach Him with boldness, with confidence. And that we can be assured that He is always concerned for us. And we can be assured that He cares for us. This is astonishing news. This is true for you as a believer in the Lord Jesus, accomplished by Christ. In Christ, this is true. The concept of God being our Father, I trust, is wonderful to all of us. I trust it lands on us as great news. But I also am very aware, as I survey this room, I'm looking at people who had very different experiences, perhaps, with your earthly father. So sometimes that affects us. Clearly, it affects us in a lot of ways. But even as we come to Scripture and we think about the fact that God is a Father, okay, well, maybe, maybe you are fortunate and you sit here in this room and you have or you had a really good dad. And you can say, I see that God is like that, only more so. I see that God is good like my dad was good to me, but then so much, infinitely much more so is he good. That's wonderful for those of you who have had that experience. Some of you might think, yeah, I had a really rough relationship. Have a rough relationship with my dad. It's not good. For those of us who have had that experience, you can say, praise God that he will be very different than that. Praise God that he is different than my experience perhaps was with my father on earth. And then some of you in the room will be sitting there thinking and maybe saying, I've never had a dad. I've never known what it's like to even have a father on earth then lands on you and say, but thank God I have one in heaven. That's wonderful news. Maybe you didn't have a dad on earth. You've never known him. But praise be to God, you have a father in heaven. As his adopted child, all of us being adopted children, God loves us always, always. His love is steadfast. It's unrelenting and it's unwavering. Now, our experience often tells us that that's not true. We wrestle with that reality. We struggle. We go through hard things. We sin. Our love, it ebbs and flows and all these things. But God always remains the same in His faithful love to you and me. That was captured very well by the hymn writer Horatius Bonar when he penned these words, my love is oft times low, my joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with him remains the same, no change Jehovah knows. That is what you rest your head on at night, that is the rock that you stand on, you stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his righteousness and you rest in the love of God for you as his child. That though you might be all over the place 
in your love and your joy and your obedience and all of these things, His love for you remains unchanged. The song that many of us sing with our children, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is a wonderful song. And for our purposes today, I might slightly render that for, for you and for me as we think about this. We could easily, just as easily sing, God is my Father, this I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. doesn't matter how you feel. I don't trust how you feel. I don't trust how I feel as far as I can throw it. What matters is that God has adopted you, and God has adopted me, and He loves you, and He loves me. Not because we're great, not because there was anything in us that would have merited that adoption. He did it because He is a good and merciful and gracious God, and He knew full well what He was doing. It's just like Moses says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were great or large or worthy that God has chosen you. It's because the Lord loves you. Israel, why, why did God choose you of all the nations in the world? If anything, you're the least impressive. You're small. You're nothing compared to some of these other nations in the world. It wasn't because you earned it. God loves you because He loves you. Period. So when you're sitting there and you're thinking like, oh my gosh, like there's nothing in me that God would find lovable. On the one hand, that's exactly right. And his love for you is not grounded in you. It's grounded in him. It's grounded in his grace. God loves you because he loves you. He has adopted you because he loves you. He has made you his because he loves you. And he loves you because he loves you. We are fully and perfectly loved, every one of us. There's no gradation. There's no distinction in affection when it comes to the relationship of God with His children. We are perfectly and fully loved by Him always. And so everything that comes to us from His hand is good and loving. And now, in light of the fact that life is hard, and in light of the fact that you sin and I sin, and we often find ourselves, it feels like I'm just, I'm floundering, I'm struggling. This brings us to takeaway number two. Takeaway number two is that with adoption comes assurance. With adoption comes assurance. And by assurance, I mean essentially assurance of salvation, assurance that you will be with God forever. So hopefully... I think if you're tracking with me, you're already maybe landing at this place yourself, how assurance and adoption are connected. Let me just put it this way. It would only be a really bad father that would ever throw his children out of his house. It's only a really bad father who would ever throw his kids out of his house. And God is certainly not a bad father. God is a good and faithful father. Now, this topic of assurance and how can you know that you know that you know that you are good with God and He is good with you. This is stuff that is good for us to, to realize and to know. In the Roman Catholic Church, 
Some in this room would have come out of that tradition. In the Roman Catholic Church, assurance is inconceivable. Assurance that you could be good with God and know that you're good with God and know that heaven awaits you is inconceivable. The entire system in Roman Catholicism is actually built upon the fact that there is no such thing as assurance of salvation. You cooperate with the grace of God in the seven sacraments. Partake of as much grace as you can, and hopefully you won't have to be in purgatory for too long. Partake of as much grace as you can, and hopefully it'll go well for you. Can't make you any promises. I want to talk about the kind of bondage and slavery that is, but I will refrain. But then, even in churches like in our land and across the world today that would consider themselves to be evangelical, Protestant churches, this idea, this biblical truth of assurance is often framed as a pursuit of the believer. It's framed as this goal to achieve. Like if you do well enough and work hard enough, then you can have assurance. But friends, in the New Testament, as you read the New Testament, assurance that God is good with you through faith in Jesus Christ, like that he's really good with you and that you can bank on that, it's a fact. It's a fact. As I've said before, assurance is the essence of the Christian life, not the pursuit. Assurance is the essence of the Christian life, not the goal. What we mean by that is that in the lifeblood of the Christian life is this declaration by God, righteous by faith in my Son. You are good with me, and I am good with you in my Son. You are justified in my sight today, and you will be justified in my sight at the end of history because of Jesus. That is what the entire Christian life is built upon, and that's what it flows out of. It's in the DNA of the Christian life as I read Scripture. Obviously, you have Scripture in front of you too and can weigh it. Another way to say this is that the, the sort of resting pulse, you know, the resting heart rate, so to speak, of the believer is assurance that God is good with me. It's assurance. That's my natural posture. That's my resting posture that God is good with me through Jesus and that I have been adopted as his child and that he is my father. He is no longer my judge. thinking back to Romans 8.15 that's so connected to Galatians 4.6. Those two verses are saying very similar things. Where Paul tells us that we have not been given the spirit of slavery. We've not been given the spirit of slavery. He's going to say you've been given the Holy Spirit. But he says you've not been given the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've not been given the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. What does that mean? It means that we relate to God differently now. We have been given His Spirit. It's been put within us. It's causing us to call Him Father. We're relating to Him as Father. The Spirit reminds us in an ongoing way that God is my Father and I'm His child. It's no longer this fear-based relationship as though I were going to be standing before a judge who is ready to damn me. That 
In my experience in space and time, there was a point in my life where that was my relationship to him because I was unrepentant. I didn't agree with what he said about me. I didn't trust his son. I didn't love him. Those things have changed because I've been born again. And so now my relationship to God is entirely different. And this is why, I, as I observe it, this is why it's so sad, and on the one hand, it's, it's frustrating, that fear is so often used as the motivator in the church. Fear is so often used as the motivator to get Christians to do stuff. And I say this humbly, I just think that's entirely wrong as we read the New Testament, as we read Scripture. As I've said before, I don't want to be misunderstood. Do warnings exist in the Scripture for a reason? Absolutely. Do we need to warn people who are in unrepentant sin? You better believe it. When a person is sinning and they don't want to call it sin, we warn them. Like, brother, sister, like, stop, wake up. If somebody is saying, yeah, what I'm doing is sin and I don't care, we warn them. I mean, that's, that's, cool. that's the use of the warnings. And certainly, we can warn our unbelieving family and friends. Now, this has been grossly abused, you know, this kind of turn or burn stuff. But we can, in loving, kind ways, talk to our unbelieving family and friends and coworkers about the fact that God is good and that he will deal with sin. So there are certainly ways in which we use the warnings of Scripture. But in terms of the motivator for the Christian, fear is not it. God is not our judge anymore. He is our Father. And so this is how, this kind of posture where it's, I think, in good motivation, is aimed at nominalism. It's aimed at people who are Christian in name only. This kind of easy believism stuff and the fact that our churches are full of a lot of unbelieving people. That's why I think a lot of guys preach with that kind of edge, you know, where it's like I've got to threaten people to motivate them to holiness. And this is how kind of in a maybe humorous way to put it, this is how you end up getting sermons on love that sound angry, right? It's like we're going to talk about loving each other, and I'm, the whole time I sound ticked off at you. Like that's how that happens. That's sort of ironic that we would be preaching on love and compassion and all these kinds of things with this angry, like edgy tone. No. This is all because, friends, this is all everything, this assurance piece is all grounded in the finished work of Christ in our place. My sin really was counted to him, and he really was judged in my place, and it's over. It's over. My, his righteousness really has been credited to me, and that's what I stand on now and forever. And so my concern, friends, I, I want to be very clear, too, with my, my concerns about things that I even observe in the church in our day, it's not that I think people are being told to trust in their own righteousness as the ground of their salvation. I don't think that's happening. That error is clear, right? And thank God it is. We're not having just straight up works righteousness preached in a lot of pulpits, and I rejoice in that reality. But what I fear happens is that in very subtle ways, some of them may be less so, but in, a lot of times in very subtle ways, people are being pointed to this kind of mixture of Christ's righteousness 
and then their own relative holiness as the ground of their assurance. We're being pointed to this mixture, this kind of concoction, this blend of Christ's righteousness and then my own relative holiness if I'm going to have assurance. To which it has to be said, if your relative holiness has anything to do with it, your assurance is gone. Unless you are just utterly deceived, if your holiness has anything to do with your standing before God, you got no shot, nor do I. Now, transformation happens. The changed life happens. If transformation hasn't happened, we need to have a conversation. But the motivation for holiness is the perfect righteousness of Christ counted to me. A heart that's been changed. I've been indwelt now by the Spirit of God. My posture towards God is different. I love Him. I'm grateful to Him. I'm humble before Him. I want to honor Him. It's driven by grace. It's driven by the Spirit. It's driven by love. It's driven by joy. It's driven by gratitude. It's not driven by fear. And even when God is disciplining me, when my life is really hard, and He's disciplining me, I don't ever mistake that for Him forsaking me. I know that He's disciplining me because He loves me. He is a good Father. And if good fathers on earth discipline their children, how much more so will God do that? I said some of that last week, and, and you can check out that, that sermon when we get it online. I think you may have gotten it in the newsletter. The discipline of God is a loving thing. Sin brings with it consequence. And God disciplines us. And it doesn't mean for one moment that He has forsaken us or turned His back on us at all. I'm very aware of the appeal to the letter of James. I am drawing this to a close. I'm very aware of the appeal, the appeal to the letter of James. In particular, verse 21, when we're talking about this whole justified by faith, assurance in the righteousness of Christ, but what, are the place, what is the place of works? And James says in James 2.21 that our father Abraham was justified by works. He says that. Through history, people have said not great things about how Paul and James must be at odds with each other. Not true. I would just make one observation. Perhaps we'll preach through the book of James sometime in the future. I trust we will. When James writes that in verse 21 of James chapter 2, was not Abraham our father justified by works? The second half of that verse is critical. When, okay, well, when was he justified by works? He was justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Okay, well, think back. Genesis 17, Genesis 15, Genesis 12. So Genesis 12, God makes the promise to Abraham. Genesis 15, God counts Abraham righteous. When Abraham believes God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Then all the way, now five chapters later, and in space and time, decades later. Decades later. Because when God counted Abraham righteous, Abraham did not even have Isaac yet. Right? I mean, this is decades prior. But now, in chapter 22 of Genesis is when Abraham is going to go sacrifice his son. So if James is saying that Abraham was justified by works when he sacrificed Isaac, it has to be said. It's clear. Well, God had already justified him decades earlier, bro. So what are you talking about? You couldn't be talking about he was saved 
by sacrificing his son. What we're talking about is a demonstration. A demonstration of justifying faith. That's what that was. So in one sense, it's a vindication. It's an affirmation that in fact that justification had happened. I've gotten this question a few times. That's partly why I'm putting it in today. What did you do with James 2? You know, and it's, I, that's it. Abraham was justified long before he did the work that justified him. And that work, we would understand, was a demonstration of saving faith. He was showing his faith by what he did. And that is true for the Christian. And it is something that God produces in us by his Holy Spirit. And the encouraging thing too, friends, is we've considered Abraham a lot through this letter, and this is partly why I even bring it up here too. It's very encouraging when you look at the life of Abraham. It's, it's, it gives you heart because it's so clear that Abraham's sanctification, his growth, it was not this beautiful, progressive, nice, straight line at all. Between that justified moment in Genesis 15 and that work that James cites in Genesis 22, there is a lot of up and down. And there is as much down as there is up. In fact, in terms of what the scripture records, it's uglier than it is pretty. And we've considered that already, and I won't labor that point. But let that give you heart that if you see yourself doing some of this, that in no way means that you are not God's. We're not condoning sin, but we seek to give you comfort in your struggle. Because scripture, God gives it to you. He has given it to you. Because he's adopted you through his son. And so friends, we've been promised an inheritance and therefore our hope is certain. And it's all through Christ. We will be with God forever. We will see Jesus as he is. We will behold his glory. He prays for that. That we would be with him. That we would see his glory that his father gave him before the foundations of the world. We'll enjoy that forever. We'll eat and drink with him. We sang about that earlier. Brethren, we have met to worship that last verse where we'll sit down at the table with Jesus. Talk about a family gathering of the greatest kind. Don't you ache for that day? I do. My gosh, I do. And that doesn't mean that we don't have good things in our lives now. We do. But it's so clear that this isn't what we were made for. We were made for that. That gathering, that life, that existence that's perfect with God forever. And we can know that we have it. It's as good as ours now because of what Christ has accomplished. And so, in the midst of the struggle, friend, I would encourage you to trust Christ and to look to him. And even as you think about the new heavens and the new earth, and you're like, okay, that's what I'm promised, but I can't even conceive of that reality. I can't conceive of a life without sin. I can't conceive of what it's going to be like to be with God. Join the club, because none of us can. None of us can conceive of that perfectly. But I leave you with these words from a Christian preacher from several hundred years ago. As he was near the end of his life, he said this about the next life. He says, my knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But it's enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. Amen. Let's pray.